Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dads on the Fly podcast. I'm Caleb Simmons. And I'm Joshua Simmons. We are two brothers who love fly fishing, our families, and our men of faith. But like most of you listening, we're still not experts on any of those subjects. So our hope is to speak with as many people that we believe are experts on these subjects and pose the questions that most of us are asking. So thanks for joining us along the journey as we seek to inspire and encourage dads and anglers as we wade through fishing, fatherhood, and faith on the fly. And welcome to episode 117 of the Dads on the Fly podcast. I'm Caleb Simmons alongside my brother Joshua Simmons. Joshua, what's going on, man? Doing great, man. Had a great Thanksgiving weekend with every family and all the families combined. And uh, looking forward to uh, getting back into it with a great episode today from a, from a special guest. But I uh, just want to tell everybody, hope they had a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Uh, we definitely enjoyed our Thanksgiving. Got some time to uh, hang out with some family and uh, spend some time uh, doing things i like to do which is eating a lot and so uh we had a lot of fun doing that and then uh, you got to get on the water as well didn't you yeah i got to do a little float trip on friday um solo i did a trip with me only on the horse i'm kind of impressed how'd that go for you i was the only man ruined it was a good time i did great i mean it was nice. great yeah. awesome. we caught a couple fish got a friend of mine on his first ever fish on the fly rod sweet so uh super awesome he's a huge supporter of the podcast so uh, happy to be able to do that and get him on a, a couple of trout on the fly rod. That was pretty fun. And uh, Foster tagged along, so it was a, it was a good overall day for sure. And uh, just uh, happy to uh, have that opportunity and a couple days off to just kind of relax, really. It's been a nice weekend. Yeah, for sure, man. It has been great. And uh, we got to celebrate Thanksgiving with our family today, which was a lot of fun and uh, always good to hang out with our fam. And uh, so, yeah, man, excited about Everything's going on, and we are headed into the holidays, and so want to let everybody know if uh, you want a really cool Christmas present, we've still got some Dads on the Fly hats available, um, so uh, you can shoot that to a, a loved one and let them know that's a great present for you. Uh, they're, they're sweet hats, first of all. Um, you know, they're the awesome Richardson hats, and uh, they got our logo on them with the, uh, two the, the leather. Yeah, we got two color camos, and uh, they're, they're super cool, so um, encourage you, if you're interested in one of those, to... Uh, Shoot us a message, and uh, we'll get a hat sent your way. And next week, uh, we will have the Dads on the Fly holiday gift guide episode. So uh, if you're still wondering about some uh, which episode your wife should listen to, if you're listening <laughs> to this as a dad, next week's episode is definitely the episode um, to give her all the clues of some things you might want. Because uh, I've been digging up some good ones, man. I think I've decided we're going to do uh, – so maybe off kind of out of the box uh, gifts. So you got a week to think about it. I like it. Well, uh, we are excited to. Welcome to the podcast today, Mr. Chad Miller, and uh, Chad is just a super cool guy. Um, we we found Chad on Instagram and uh, through a couple of other podcasts that we listen to, and Chad just has a really cool story. Uh, he's from Indiana, which you're going to hear a little bit more about. He's got this really cool connection to Indiana basketball that we get into, and then uh, we spend some time just learning so much about smallmouth from Chad. Chad is a smallmouth guru. Yeah, I kind of nerded out a little bit on the basketball stuff in the episode for sure, <laughs> um, especially the Hoosier stuff. Is pretty. That's kind of one of the reasons I want to go fish with him, uh, not just the smallmouth, but also some of that stuff. Um, and it was cool, if you noticed last week's episode when we spoke with Mr. Al White, uh, Chad's been kind of one of Al's mentors, so we've uh, we've held this episode for a little bit, and it was a great time to drop it on top right there with Al. So you've got a two uh, episodes of heavy Smalley stuff. Um, so you know, definitely one you'll be going back listening to about May 
but uh, we're dropping it here in the middle of end of November. But definitely in May, you want to go back and hit this one because uh, the smallie stuff is good time. Yeah, I mean, this one's worth taking some notes on when it comes to uh, thinking about how to attack smallie fishing. Chad's got it really dialed in uh, there up in Indiana, and uh, he does a great job just kind of teaching us a lot of stuff about smallmouth. And then the second half of today's episode, we dive a little bit more into Chad's kind of story when it comes to his faith. And uh, he shares a lot about uh, what growing up was like for him, uh, how his um, how his beliefs uh, maybe they didn't change over time, but the, some things transitioned, which he, which he gets into a little bit. And he talks a little bit about uh, raising kids up in, in today's world and uh, being uh, considerate about what we're teaching them and uh, so that they can have a faith that is lasting. So uh, I'm excited for everyone to hear this episode with Mr. Chad Miller, and uh, we will dive into that right now after a few words from our sponsors. Dads on the Fly is brought to you by Trout Routes. Joshua... I love the Trout Routes app, and it has become an amazing tool that helps us to find more trout to catch whenever we go on any of our adventures together. Just exploring new water is what makes Trout Routes great, and these guys are always making the app better. Something is added every day, a new feature. They've just added the Street View feature, which you've got to check out. Click on the orange dot, hit Street View, you can see what the trout stream looks like there. So I can't tell you enough about how cool Trout Routes is when you're out looking for new water. And that's a game changer for us, Josh. We'll be able to see these locations where you want to try to access these rivers. I mean, it's going to be great. So I'm stoked to continue to use the Trout Routes app. We encourage everybody, go wherever you get your apps, download the Trout Routes app. They will be the best tool to help you find more trout to catch. Hey, Caleb, one thing we've done recently is so much smallie fishing. And so much smallie fishing means we're on our raft. And when you hook into that big smallie, man, you want to get that sucker in a net. And we have chosen, and we are so happy to be have Dads on the Fly brought to you by catch cam nets yeah joshua catch cam nets are amazing uh the cool thing that i love about catch cam nets is they allow you to design and build your own net so for whatever type of fishing you're doing to customize it with certain uh logos or different you know they got rulers on the net handles all these amazing things that just make your fishing experience better so we encourage everybody if you're looking and if you're in the market for a net check them out at catchcamnets.com and the best thing about it is if you are a small water fisher if you're a big water fisher whatever fish you're catching chasing they have a net for you. So please reach out to Bo and Steven over at Catch Cam Nets, and they will build your custom net today. So welcome, everyone. We want to welcome to the Dads on the Fly podcast tonight, Mr. Chad Miller. Chad from, remind me, where at in Indiana? I'm in West Central Indiana around Crawfordsville. All right, and we are welcoming Chad tonight to talk to us about all things uh fly fishing but especially we're going to dive in here to some smallmouth in a minute but before we get into that chad uh talk to us just a little bit your introduction into fly fishing and when that kind of really took off for you well the the family rule was you had to be 10 to learn to fly cast um <laughs> and so and i understood why dad just didn't really want to teach me till i you know had some idea you know, I was teachable, let's put it that way. In my family, we were, we were actually taught to shoot jump shots before we were uh, uh, fly fishing. But anyway. Um, Indiana, right? That's right. Well, my family has a special connection to it. So it was sort of an expectation. Basketball was an expectation. Fly fishing was really our pastime. Okay. Um, but my my great grandfather, my grandfather, my dad, me, now my kids, it's a generational fly fishing family. Um, so I, dad taught me to fly cast when I was 10 and 
and we still did a lot of other things. We fished a lot of different ways. I, I fished every way you can imagine from spinning tackle to, you know, all sorts of gear and live bait when I was a kid. I, I did all that stuff. Fly fishing was always, always what I wanted to do. Um, and so it was, for me, it was sort of a natural progression into what I, I did. I do now, which, but actually I didn't want to, I didn't really, I knew I wanted a fishing career, but I didn't really see it this way. I, I'm not sure how I ended up where I'm at, but anyway, um, just God's providence, I guess. So you said your family had a real special connection to basketball kind of before fly fishing. Do you mind diving in a little bit more of that? Oh, sure. Um, so my family goes back to, if you know anything about Montgomery County, Crawfordsville in particular is the, is the cradle of basketball. Hmm. So this is really where it truly began. Um, there was a guy named Nicholas McKay who worked for James Naismith at the YMCA school. So when he created the game basketball in Massachusetts, one of his assistants was Nicholas McKay. Well, Nicholas McKay in 1890, I think, graduated from YMCA school and he took the job at the Crawfordsville YMCA and transplanted basketball here and it actually became a competitive sport. This is where Crawfordsville is where the rim was created. You know, the local blacksmith created a, a rim and it's where the peach basket was taken down and so on and so forth. But my family goes back. My great-grandfather played at Wingate and that's special significance because the first two state championships were won at Wingate. Wow. And my great uncle's brother, who we always called uncle, but he wasn't, Roy Meharry, invented the electronic scoreboard. And the first basketball scoreboard was built there in Wingate. If you watch the movie Hoosiers, which was also filmed here, if you watch the movie Hoosiers, you'll see Roy keeping score during the game. And the scoreboard at the Hickory, uh, little, you know, at the, at the in Knightstown, actually, is where they filmed the basketball part. But um, the scoreboard there was a replica built by my cousin. So, um, so it, it, it goes further than that. I mean, generationally from my great grandfather to my grandfather, I have his 1935 picture basketball picture. Then my dad was a good player. My uncles, my uncle was the county's all time leading scorer and just on and on. I think there were 13 of us cousins that played at North Montgomery after consolidation. So it's just been a, and when, and when Hoosiers was filmed here, it was a big deal for my family. You know, it was it was such a special time. Um, it was really neat because it was filmed during my junior year. And I remember uh, after school, they wouldn't let us go home the back way because they were filming on the back roads behind the school. And uh, I got in trouble for going the wrong way. But uh, late, later, by my basketball coach. Anyway, <laughs> back, <laughs> later is that near the end of the filming of it, they did the famous Hinkle Fieldhouse um, uh, thing where they, you know, they filmed the state championship for the movie. And I remember that day distinctly because they came where they made an announcement over the school PA. It said anybody that wants to go be in the crowd uh, at the Hinkle Fieldhouse during the filming can get on the buses and go today. Oh, well, wow. our basketball coach ran around and grabbed all of us and said, you cannot go. You cannot get on. <laughs> Because this is a stupid. This was how dumb the IHSAA was. If we'd have gotten on the the, if we'd have gotten in the film in any way, shape, or form, we'd have lost our eligibility, which was dumb. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. But anyway, 
so then it came out my senior year and I remember the the local theater had all the memorabilia from from uh from the the state championship and the school and everything it was just a it was a really really special time um you know one of the places I put in on Sugar Creek is the hill if you watch the beginning of the movie Hackman's Gene Hackman's driving down the hill at this bridge where in fact, tomorrow I think I'm putting in there, or no, Thursday yeah. I'm putting in there. So okay, I asking so. people, we always ask people when we're going down that hill, hey, have you ever seen this hill in the famous movie? What movie? Anyway, nobody ever gets it right. Oh, I would. I, I think I'm now coming just <laughs> for all of that. Not even, we're going to get into smallmouth here in a minute, but you're talking to a, you know, a middle school basketball coach who makes his players <laughs> watch this every year. So I can quote the movie Dude, much less. I, uh, I know so many people in that movie. They used to come in our locker plant. My family had a slaughterhouse locker plant for five generations as well. And the farmers would come in and introduce themselves. They'd say, hey, I'm uh, Jack Pfeiffer. I was in the movie. Yeah, I know, Jack. You were in the movie. That's <laughs> why they always introduced themselves. My name's Sud. My name's Jim Finners. I, you know, I was in the movie. Yeah, Jim, I know. I saw you. You told me before. <laughs> well, that was always everybody's thing. I, I'm such and such. I was in the movie. That's really cool, man. So, Chad, obviously basketball, a huge thing to you and a huge thing to your family. Um, But then fly fishing became so important to you. And and it almost doesn't make sense, does it, that a kid from West Central Indiana, the, the, the cradle of basketball, ends up having a fly fishing career or that I have a family that, you know, basketball and fly fishing runs parallel. It doesn't it really doesn't kind of make sense. It's a weird mixture, but, but yeah, that's what happened. I find it. I find it really interesting. Did you, uh, did you kind of have support to chase that career and not the basketball the fly stuff? fishing career? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So let me tell you how this works. I used to have people come in the fly shop and ask me, how do you, you know, my son or my daughter has this, you know, this, uh, they want your, they want to do what you do. So can you give me some advice on how to, nurture that and i'll tell them exactly how i ended up in this and this is my response well you have to ignore personal responsibility um alienate your loved ones because you fish a lot um uh flunk out of college that's prerequisite and then one day you wake up in the boat and somebody's paying you to take them fishing you're like how did i get here oh yeah i screwed off my whole life and this is where i ended up (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah that's kind of it wasn't a nurtured thing it was just uh i don't know i don't i'm I'm still confused about how I, my life doesn't make any sense at all so how long of a fly fishing career have you i mean what year does this make of you running guide trips well 27 years wow. but see i <laughs> i didn't want to be a guide and I, I don't know people have heard this story before, so I'll, I'll not tell all of it. But I I didn't want to be a guide. I never desired to be a guide. and I But I did love fly shops. So I opened a fly shop when I was 27 called Wildcat Creek Outfitters in Lafayette. And that grew, uh, eventually grew into two fly shops, lodges, and a uh, pretty significant business. But the first year I was there, I there was an article written about me in a magazine about my childhood on the Tippecanoe river in Sugar Creek and people had started coming in wanting trips. Finally, this one guy was 
kind of obstinate about it and said, you're going to take me fishing. This is dumb. This is, you know, you're going to do this and, and get your calendar out. So he forced me, literally forced me to take him fishing. And I did. And I thought, huh, well, this wasn't so bad. And that is how I became a guide. Hmm. And so the, the fly fishing business, the outfitting business grew to a point where I had to quit guiding. Um, so I quit guiding for six years while the business grew and it grew in giant leaps and bounds. And then when I, you know, kind of went through some things in my life where it was time to walk away, um, walked away, uh, you know, sold everything. And then after about 10 months of moping around, not doing, knowing what I want to do with my life and turning down one in particular lucrative job, I told my wife I was going to guide again. And she thought I was nuts. I said, I'll figure out a career. Uh, you know, I'm just going to guide for a little while. Well, that was five years ago. Hmm. So I figured it out. I'm just going to do this till I die. Well, you obviously have a connection to Indiana. What is it about, you know, that's not a place that I think is that a lot of people think when you think fly fishing, but now that I've followed you on Instagram for quite some time, Holy cow. I, I mean, it's, seems like you are definitely have a spot there. What is about that area? And it's great that you got to stay in the area you kind of grew up in. What is about the area that means so much to you? You know, it's interesting. I am sort of unique in that I, I guide in a traditionally non, I mean, this doesn't, this, this Indiana in general doesn't, you know, when you mentioned destinations, doesn't, you know, roll off people's tongues. Um, and we're kind of in the middle of a lot of places around us that kind of are north and south. But Indiana is unique in that we are a state of rivers. Um, the Wabash River system is the Wabash River is the longest flowing, free flowing river uh, west of uh, the Rockies hmm. or well of the Mississippi. Sorry. So it's 463 miles long and it drains almost the whole state of Indiana. Well, about two thirds of it because we have the Grand Kankakee Marsh just above it between South Bend and the Wabash Valley. The Grand Kankakee Marsh was actually in Indiana was the largest wetlands in America. It was bigger than the Everglades until they drained it for farmland. So it's nutrient rich. It's there's 34,000 miles of smallmouth streams in Indiana. We actually have per square mile, more running water, more, more running water than the square miles in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Wow. So we have tons of running water, bunch of rivers. Um, so, you know, and smallmouth are native here. They weren't stocked here. They're God put them here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that I, I don't want to, I don't want to promote it that much. You know, oh, I don't I understand. I, I don't, I don't want people showing up on my rivers uh, necessarily, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's a guy I guided today. He came in from Colorado. He flew in just to fish. And I've got him again, got him again tomorrow. We, in fact, we caught some nice fish today. So, you know, it's the, the cat's kind of out of the bag, but there's so many rivers and small streams and there's more water in my part of the state, what we call Indiana smallmouth country. You, there's more water than you could fish in your life. Yeah. Well, we have, uh, <clears throat> Chad, we've definitely gotten the smallmouth bug here recently. Uh, we're here in Western North Carolina. Uh, we have found smallmouth and several local rivers, and we're still kind of trying to figure them out. So we'd love, since we've got this opportunity, 
take some time to maybe learn a little bit from you about how to chase these guys. Um, cause I gotta be honest with you, you know, we, I've been fly fishing for about 10 years now. I've been chasing trout most of that time. And really just this past year, I've kind of gotten in for lack of a better term hooked on smallmouth. And so, um, there's just something special about it, in my opinion. So I'd love for you to speak to that a little bit. Why do you love chasing smallmouth so much? I'm sure there's other species for you to chase in that area, but why do you love chasing smallmouth so much? I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish I had it. It's like, why do people, why do I love fly fishing? I really don't have, I just, I don't have great answers for that. I think um, if you sort of boil it down to a, to a species specific view of smallmouth bass because they have a bunch of close relatives you know large mouth and spotted bass and i've had the opportunity to catch shoal bass with right right or alan ragsdale down in georgia um we have spotted bass here as well uh but those shoal bass are really cool and there's other swannies and red eyes and all sorts of cool warm water fish i think i think what makes smallmouth interesting to me you know people talk about how hard they fight the guys today were like oh even the 12 inchers fight hard they do they're wild fish they're you know they they go through a lot just to get to 12 inches and and a fish that gets to 23 inches which we caught one about 10 days ago a 23 inch fish it takes it's a miracle for that fish to get that big um so I, i think what is fascinating to me about smallmouth is their adaptation or their ability to adapt to all sorts of situations and forage bases. Smallmouth are not just mindless eating machines. They are much more complex than that. Uh, So the guys who catch smallmouth on a 12-month basis, and I mean in all seasons, have got to understand biology, um, feeding habits, forage. Uh, They have to be able to read a uh, river they got to know where those fish go seasonally because they're not always just in the same places sometimes in bigger rivers they'll they'll move 30 miles in a season oh. and then and other fish are in the same places their whole life i mean that 23 inch fish i've caught before i i checked the pictures of a 22 and 22 inch fish that i caught three years ago because it was in the same general area i mean really general areas not general it was in the same spot it was the same fish so that fish did, he lives on that bank. He just doesn't go anyplace else. I think he moves to another spot in the winter, but it doesn't matter. But I think the complexity of that fish keeps me fascinated. And, you know, uh, from catching them in big water, in cold water, on big flies early, down to terrestrial season where you're, you know, you're dead drifting and plopping hoppers and beetles to fish you can see to sight fish and have them come up and sip it. It's a, it's a really fascinating fish. They don't, people who don't fish for them or fish for them maybe just when the fishing's good have no idea about their complexity. I think that's it. What it boils down to for me from a seasonal standpoint. So talking seasonally, that's, that's something I think Caleb and I need to learn. We've, we haven't done as probably much in the winter as we have maybe in the spring and summer. Uh, and, you know, like I said, as Caleb said, we've 
we're very new to the smallmouth world. Uh, we got a raft about a year and a half ago. And so that really opened up some opportunities for us to chase some smallmouth. And we got some good smallmouth in this area right here, Western North Carolina. Uh, so just for, uh, without going into too much detail, do, do you have a favorite? I mean, you like it all. Do you have a favorite season? Obviously that top water bite probably is pretty incredible. Um, but you, you target them differently. Uh, do you have a favorite? Um, it's, that's a good question. Uh, probably, I mean, it's always probably going to be terrestrial season for me when, you know, that's an August and September thing. When I stumbled upon that in the 90, late nineties, I had no idea how much it would change my life. Um, you know, discovering those fish eat beetles and eat hoppers and then sort of over time developing, um, developing the techniques and flies over a long period of time so that's always going to be special to me but you know it's interesting and you're not going to probably like this answer but my one of my probably my second favorite thing is winter fishing and i don't do it with a fly rod that much i do it sometimes but i really like spin fishing in the winter um <laughs> so i know that's not what fly fishing want to hear and sometimes when i talk about that that Maybe people's ideas about me are are, are kind of crushed, no, but absolutely not. I I just love soft plastics in the wintertime. It's become one of my very favorite things. So, but probably if you had to pin me down, uh, fly fishing and you know f from a fly fishing standpoint, it's going to be my two favorite months are March and in uh, August. Those are my two favorite months. Without going into too much detail, because we don't want to ever ask anybody to give all their secrets, but does it are you predominantly when you're not throwing the hoppers and the uh the beetle type thing are you predominantly wind fly fishing is it it's a streamer game it's what we've kind of on our ends what we've learned or are you doing some other stuff no, no i do all sorts of stuff i mean i do a fair fair amount of streamer fishing i'm i probably have developed as many streamers as anything else um but streamers are again a complex thing it's not uh it's not it's not simply putting a streamer in the water and stripping it fast or stripping it slow i mean there's there's all sorts of things whether it be you know uh front weighted streamers that you know want to die want to want to sink when you don't strip them to to swimming flies that stay in the upper part of the water column and that could be there's a whole family of those different flies um so there, there's different techniques but it's usually about the about the sort of attitude of the fish at that point. But I look, if today we caught almost all our fish on, on poppers today. Hmm. And while the water's very low and very clear, we're not moving the popper as much as I normally would in, in May, I'm going to fish on the surface as much as I can. Now, one of my rivers, and I won't say which one, but one of my rivers is those fish are so programmed to eat on the surface that, I mean, from I've caught them in early as April 5th on the surface and as late as November 9th. Wow. I mean, so if you, <laughs> and uh, it's a little painful during those times to, to do it, it's hard, but I can pretty much catch fish almost all year on the surface in one river and the other river, it's a little more complex than that because it goes up and down quite a bit because it's controlled by a dam. But I, um, I'm going to fish on surface as much as I can. And now that may mean in high water, a bigger popper and in low water a smaller popper uh in terrestrial season i may use a bigger terrestrial in higher water and 
you know, and vice versa. So that's really it for me. I think those are the, my favorite times and, and my favorite techniques. So do you have any, but, I, but any... I'll do all sorts of things. I'll also crawdad fish with indicators. I'll fish helger mites and dead drift them with indicators and high stick nymphing, um, different streamers. I'll fish two streamers with a dropper. There's, there's all sorts of things I'll do. So for your surface patterns that you love so much, do you have any fly patterns that, that are kind of your go-tos? My deer hair poppers, the, the, the flash tail popper, which is deer hair. Um, I'm, I use cork too. Look, I have boogle bugs in my box because I'm a guide Yeah, and I just get tired of tying deer hair, but it's super effective, but yeah, I just do not like fly tying in general. I'm not a fan of fly tying at all. And you know, I have all that. Yeah. <laughs> With all the stuff right there next to you. Gigantic, gigantic tying. You can see my whole room and everything anyway. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Um, anyway, so I really don't i don't despise it but i don't also like it um so get me up here to do this so I, i'll use boogle bugs too sure. um and i like the size of the because they're not too big but you know i between my deer hair poppers and terrestrials and dragonflies in fact there was an article on the wildcat streamer that's in this issue this summer's issue of fly tire magazine and then i think in the fall is an article on my rattling dragon my dragonfly pattern mm. So there's a progression of surface flies I use through the year. There's always sort of a foraging event where it allows me at least one category where I can use flies on the surface. That's really cool. Um, when you're, uh, when you're, what type of setups are you kind of using when you chase these fish? You throwwing mostly seven weights, six weights. Um, you throw in really long leaders, or is it kind of just changed depending on the day? Guys, that you're asking that those are the kind of details I could sit here for an hour and talk about. But <laughs> listen, I primarily I have I have sevens, sixes, and fives. I won't have fives until ter terrestrial season. Yeah, I primarily use five weights during terrestrial season just because of the presentation. I'll use a six occasionally, but the primary rod for most of the seasons is going to be a seven weight. Okay, that's really neat. So. Go ahead. I, got, I got one other question okay. before we kind of move on maybe from like methods and stuff. So I don't want to ask uh, too much, you know, trying to dive into too many of your secrets, Chad, but I'd love for you to talk through. You talked about the fact that these fish are so complex. So when you're heading out to the water or when you're planning the next trip, what are the things that you're paying attention to? What are the things you're considering, I guess? I mean, I'm sure time of year, water temperature, what, what are the things that kind of really stand out that are helping you make decisions of what you're going to do that day. So it's all, you know, what fish, what these fish eat is driven by conditions, but it also is driven by the availability of forage. And most often for foraging events, which there are several through the years, you could, you know, there's a, there's an early season bait fish binge. There's a, you know, crawdad molt, there's terrestrial season, there's dragonfly season. So those are foraging events that are driven by conditions that produce a, a significant amount of forage for fish. Um, so you can sort of follow that on a seasonal basis, but they can change with conditions even within a season. It can, you know, for example, my terrestrial season, can, it can get cold in August. My last two Augusts have been cold. Hmm. I, they just have not been that warm. In, at night, it's getting in the 50s in August. Well, that's just not good for my terrestrial fishing. I want it to be so hot you can't breathe. Um, and then they really just eat those terrestrials like crazy all day long. So that's 
as an example of how conditions can change your fishing. But I'm thinking about everything down to water temperature. But, you know, I'm thinking water temperature based on the what happened while I slept that night. Hmm. Did we have a big drop in temperature? Am I going to get there and it's going to go, it's going to drop from a, you know, maybe over the last week it's been a bracket of 63 to 70 degree water temperature, you know, 63 to start and 70 to end. Well, I had a night a couple nights ago, it started at 61. I was like, oh, okay, that's a change. So am I going to completely change what I do or am I going to just adjust how I fished? I did the same thing. I just slowed down a little bit and it made a difference. I think, who knows? I think so. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm playing that water temperature game constantly. I mean, in the wintertime, I'm, that's all I do is play the water temperature game. It's, you know, I hope to get a one or two or three degree rise in the winter and that can make all the difference in the world. Hmm. Uh, but you know, one or two or three degree rise when the temperature goes from 71 to 74, isn't that big of a deal. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of things. It could be what's happening with the, you know, the weather in general. Is there high pressure? It's high pressure absolutely affects smallmouth in rivers. Don't, don't anybody tell you it doesn't matter. Those are people who don't fish and, or, and, or they do, and they don't pay attention. Um, it does. So all those conditions together can affect water clarity. That's a big one. You know, my buddy Austin Adushi fishes dirty water on a can't key better than any man alive. Um, and so you, there's all sorts of things you have to adapt to your water. You have to just adjust. Yeah. What, uh, what changes are taking place when the high pressure system comes in? What's that doing to the fish? Well, typically, well, you know, I don't know if physiologically, there's all sorts of theories about what high pressure does to fish. I don't really buy any of them. I think what happens is, you know, you typically in a in a high pressure situation have extremely high bluebird skies. And you also will have a, a some kind of weather event that happens before that. Either a front move moved through and dropped water, you know, it's rain and it's gotten dirty, or it's it's gotten cold and it's in you know, the water temperatures drop. So I think the pressure thing is just a side thing. I think it's a minor thing in terms of how physiologically it affects fish because no one's been able to prove that i think it's all the conditions that go around and are associated with that that you have to pay attention to and sometimes pressure doesn't affect as fish as much as other times sometimes it's severe and it's like whoa these fish are just not happy for whatever reason when that when those set of conditions go in and it's during that high pressure time whether it's pressure or not the other conditions cause those fish to do something else, to not be happy, to go under a log and just not eat as much. It's really cool and good stuff for us to be thinking about as we uh, plan to keep chasing these guys. And uh, I think, I mean, I've already learned some stuff, Joshua, I think, uh, about how we're going to approach maybe even this weekend. If there, we get a chance there, to get on the walk. There are some episodes you don't listen to more than once just to check our, like, you know, how we sounded. Then there are some episodes that you archive and you go back and listen to often you, that you we like do just notes. to check, to come back and, and check on <laughs> check things notes, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and I think this is it, Chad. I mean, I think this is a lot of great information. We could probably dive in so much deeper um, and really nerd out about a lot of things. But what we want to do next, though, we're going to take a short break. And then, Chad, we want to come back and learn a little bit more about your story and maybe not just the, the fishing side of things, but a little bit more into your, your family and your personal life as well. So we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. We want to give a big thank you to a sponsor of this episode, Turtle Box Audio. Joshua, Turtle Box Audio speakers, the most rugged, 
loudest outdoor speaker on the market. We just continue to not be able to say enough great things about these things. Yeah, and if you've heard any of our episodes in the last two months, maybe even longer than that, you know how much we love our Turtle Box audio. Uh, the other day, we were playing pickleball, and Corbin was like, hey, where's the Turtle Box? So it's not just for fishing. It's for anything you do. you got to get a Turtle Box audio for your family adventures anywhere you're going, whether it's out on the water or just on a beach trip or in a mountain, any, any kind of trip. You're hanging out outside. Nothing better than having a Turtle Box audio, blasting some tunes, or listen to an episode of Dazzle Fly Podcast. So uh, get your Turtle Box audio today at turtleboxaudio.com. Yeah, check them out and uh, get whatever type of custom speaker you want there at turtleboxaudio.com. Well, we're back with Mr. Chad Miller. And Chad, one reason that uh, I had reached out to you uh, to be a guest on Dads on the Fly is I'd heard uh, another interview you had done. And in that interview, somewhere in there, you spoke about uh, about your faith and how uh, being a family man was so important to you. And so uh, in this half episode, we just wanted to dive into that a little bit, if you were comfortable with that. And uh, sure. just tell us kind of w- what that means to you and where that comes from, I guess, if you just want to start. You are uh, you have three children you were telling us off here. If you want to speak just a minute about those and, and why that's so important for you to be a good father. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really blessed that all three of my kids are believers, strong believers. My wife and I, we're, we're both raised in Christian families, very similar Christian families. Um, raised, <laughs> I was raised in the in the 70s and 80s at the height of fundamentalism. So I've got the scars to prove it. Uh, And so being raised a Baptist and a a fundamentalist. um, So I I guess I should back up real quick and just tell you, you know, my family, both sides of my family, my mom and dad's family were just hedonists. My mom was a hippie. My dad was a hellion and a long line of alcoholics. uh, And, my parents were saved when I was a few months old and they, they were transformed, uh, miraculously transformed. So I am just a little kid and immediately they're in a Baptist church. And so I don't remember, but I never knew my parents the way they were. I just knew them as the strict fundamentalist. In the 70s <laughs> and, 80s. and I just remember the, no rock and roll, no movies. Uh, you'd think I had a miserable childhood, but I didn't. One, I hid my rock and roll, so I had that still. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I'm, I'm a devout believer, but I still, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't say this on your forecast. Man, I love the Foo Fighters. Anyway. Nothing but, wrong with that at all. Bring it on. <laughs> I just can't help it. Anyway, so my parents, because my parents were saved, it caused a a chain reaction through my family on both sides where cousins, uncles, three of my four grandparents on and on and on became believers. Wow. So everybody knew us as this, you know, conservative Christian family, which is, it was a complete change from what they were. So I was saved at a very young age, the age of four and was in that, in that church. And my sister is a believer and my and so I met my wife in my church, believe it or not, when we were uh, she just happened to visit when I was 23 years old and we got married. Um, so, yeah, and I've, that so that part of it's been uh, an extremely important part of our family's life. And we we live Christ crucified. Um, I know that can at times I get the chance to share the gospel in the boat on a regular basis. And I'm sure there's times where that's probably not uh, in my best financial interest, um, but I really don't care. Uh, so, yeah, I've been given a unique opportunity to travel all over the world. And I've shared the gospel from Russia to Bolivia 
so th- this fly fishing thing is kind of, you know, where God put me in terms of uh, a mission field. <laughs> I mean, how many people get to go to different countries except through a missionary and share the gospel? So that's, that's the, that's the basis of it. So you are the, uh, you know, Baptist conservative Christian family with good jump shots there for there was a t- transition, right? <laughs> that's that's right. And I'm still a Baptist to this day, but I have a little different theological outlook than I had before. So um, <laughs> my family was concerned initially when I became a reformed Baptist. <laughs> yeah. so, anyway, that's so that's my kids are all the same, same as I am now, too. So it's been a it's been a good change. So how does, uh, thank you for being, uh, opening up and talking about that, but how does that impact, um, you know, and how has that relationship with, with Christ affected you and kind of helped you as a parent of now, like these kids that obviously you're, you're very proud of when getting married to at boys college, how has that helped you in that? You know, a lot of the, our listeners and Caleb and myself, we both have younger kids. Um, and so if you could just speak to that, you know, through those years. Okay, let me let me give you the best piece of advice I can give anybody. Make sure your kids, I don't know how old they are, it doesn't matter. Make sure they are saturated in doctrine. If those kids do not have a good doctrinal base, if they can't defend what they believe, what you tell them, and then because you're telling them the truth, they eventually are going to have to determine that for themselves. Yeah. We're not saved through osmosis. We're saved individually because God moved in our heart to for us to repent they need to be able to defend what they believe so you should get deep in doctrine with those kids begin to teach them the doctrine of the holy spirit begin to defeat it to teach them the doctrine of hell the doctrine of christology the five solas make sure they're ingrained in all those things my kids text me on a regular basis hey i got a theological question about this dad um what do you think? And I'll give them my answer. And sometimes it's because they're in a discussion in a class at, at Boyce, which is this just um, this, uh, this center of conservative Christian, <laughs> in, you know, uh, intellectualism. Uh, it, it's a great place. And when these kids are thinking deeply about God, but as a parent, I, I because I was raised in fundamentalism, I saw kids leave the church, mm-hmm. kids who were not really saved. They said that sinner's prayer, which is awful. They said that sinner's prayer. Well, that's not awful, but it, it leads people in a, to a false idea about their salvation. And I've seen, I grew up with a bunch of kids who, you know, once saved, always saved. I, and, and they walk away from the faith. Well, they were never saved to begin with because they, because when they were, and then they were presented questions from a world who hates Christ. And they couldn't defend what they believe. So you know what they do? They fade away. They go away. If you want your kids to stay in church and 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 solidify and persevere in their faith, they must know doctrine. That's it. That's my best advice. I think that's good. And I think that's something to think about, you know, as we raise our kids. Um, I think one of the things that you're kind of hitting on there, Chad, that that is really applied to me and that my wife and I talk about a lot. And our boys are still really young right now. Is we want to make sure that our kids um, aren't just borrowing our faith, um, that they're actually learning, right. that, like you said, that they can defend, that they understand why they believe what they believe, um, that this isn't just a part of our culture. And this is just, you know, oh, yeah, this is what we do. This is what our family does. But right. there's actually some uh, 
there's actually some deep understanding of why they believe what they believe and why they say they believe what they believe, because you're right. I mean, when they leave our homes and when they go off in the world, they're going to be presented with a lot of stuff that maybe <clears throat> doesn't, if, if they're not, uh, if they're not grounded into these things that they truly believe uh, that that foundation becomes very shaky. And so I think, uh, I think you, you make some really good points there to be thinking about stuff like that. Well, your kids are going to be attacked at every level. And I'm, I think parents take this way too lightly. It is a, <laughs> it is a spiritual warfare and Satan in the world wants your kids to fail. And, it is your responsibility and my responsibility with my kids to, to help them persevere in the faith. We are connected where that's concerned. And so uh, I don't want to answer to God one day and him go, well, you know, you're a believer, but what, look, you didn't even do this. What, what about your kids? That that's, you know, Luther, Luther once said that he didn't care if all his books, his 400 books were done away with. That, that that was okay with him, except his small catechism for children. Yeah, that that was that was one of his great concerns was teaching our children and properly catechizing them uh, and teaching them about the faith. And so, I, I, it I think it's our biggest responsibility as parents to nurture their um, their belief, their their theology, and in doing that is doctrine's an important part of it. It's too good. Uh, tell us a little bit, shifting gears just a smidge here, taking maybe some personal experience with your own kids, but we we like to also always talk on the show uh, with our guests about maybe some best tips or some ways that you've seen in your 27 career of getting kids excited about being on the water. We talk all the time. You know, some of the guys we have, their own kids don't even like fishing. That's That's great. But, you know, some kids like it more and some kids get involved and really just can't put it down. But when you're taking either your clients fishing or maybe your own kids fishing, what are some things you've seen uh, in your specialty, you know, especially smallmouth fishing that, that really helps uh, kids be successful or have some fun out on the water? Well, when Stone was really little, Pey Peyton, my youngest son, couldn't care less about fishing. Uh, and that's okay. I don't pressure him. I don't go, well, come on, Peyton, you know, you're in a family fly fisherman. He doesn't much care. He's, he'd rather read and do some other things. But Stone, I took him out when he was three, started taking him out, and he would just hold the net, and he'd net my fish. And so it was a way for me to get him involved and, you know, not have the pressure of catching fish because he just wanted to see fish at that point. Yeah, there you go. Um, then he just progressed from there. I don't have an easy, you know, this is what you do. There's no formula. I think what you just you do is you immerse them and a lifestyle that you want them to lead to live in or or you think you know you want when you have kids you you fish you want your kids to fish with you eventually i mean in my case shoot i got a kid who can row a boat like a like a maniac that's what so we're working I, towards i put his, I put his <laughs> butt in a drift boat and i'm like you grow me i've been rowing you forever and i told him i said as soon as you have kids and they're old enough they're gonna learn to row because they're gonna row me <laughs> that's so, all yeah that's what that's what we're working towards, Joshua. Getting our kids to where they can start rowing the boat one day. Yeah, well, they're definitely gonna have to get yeah. a little bigger. And my yeah, my eleven sure. year old, who I love very much, he's gonna have to get some upper body workout going to see. Yeah, he'll grow into it. In the row, that'll do it <laughs> for sure. For sure. 
Well, Chad, uh, this has been this has been great, and uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation and learning a lot about smallmouth and learning about um, what you do there. You, you mentioned something a minute ago, and I did want to go back to this, talking about um, having that opportunity as a fly fishing guy to, to sometimes be able to share your faith, um, to sometimes be able to, uh, you know, you feel like God's kind of got you where he's got you for a reason. Um, one of my favorite theologians, he wrote a book a while back called uh, Every Good Endeavor. It's by a guy named Timothy Keller. Um, and he says this in that book. And when I you know were talking, Tim, he he just passed away. He did, yeah. It was it was that was a sad day. Um, but uh he, he says this in that book. He says our daily work can be a calling only if it's reconceived as God's assignment to serve others. And I think that's kind of what you're trying to do with 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 your guiding. Well, here's the thing, guys, about sharing the gospel with people. For one, Christians who are saved, and I think they're saved, it's shocking how few of them actually know how to share the gospel with other people. So you should be honing your ability to share the gospel. And two, the reason you're saved (laughs) is to build the church. You're not saved just so you get a ticket out of hell. That is not why Christ went to the cross and died for you. He went to the cross and died for you so you could be a part of building the church. And that is seeing sinners saved. And if you're afraid to share the gospel, then you better get over that. I'll tell you a quick, real quick story. I shared the gospel with a guy 20 years, 20 plus years ago on the river. He was an atheist or an agnostic at, at, at best. He came into my fly shop 20 years later and said, hey, you remember that conversation we had on the river back then? I said, yeah, I do remember it. You were kind of hostile. I went, you know, I got saved. Oh, wow. And then my kids are saved. My wife's saved. My dad's saved. My mom, not yet, but my dad is. It sent a chain reaction through our family. I presented the gospel to him 20 years before. That's crazy. That's wild. And then he comes in and says, hey, this changed my life. Yeah. And he was a, he's a, he's a involved in his local church. He was, you know, he'd been a believer for a couple of years. He was a solid guy. And listen, you, you're called to do that. And if you're not doing it as a believer, boy, you are missing out on the joy of seeing people saved and transformed by Christ. If you're not doing it, it's a shame. Yeah, not you a, guys, just a Christian. <laughs> <in your life. laughs> what, a, what a great story. And what a great thing for us to remember too, that, you know, we, we plant, you planted a seed that day on the river and you didn't know That's what, right. God, what God was going to do with it. And he did with it, what he did with it. Effectual calling is a great doctrine. Yeah. It is when the Holy spirit calls someone, you are going to be saved. God gets what he wants. John six thirty seven through 44. Um, we know that the father chooses us, the, Christ saves us. The Holy Spirit holds us. It is all a work of God, but it doesn't happen just without hearing the gospel. Yeah. And that's what we are created for. For sure. Well, Chad, thanks so much for this conversation. Before, before we go tonight, we wanted to uh, give you an opportunity just to uh, let everyone know if they want to come. And, and folks, just if you go follow Chad on Instagram, it's Chad. Is it Chad Miller Fly Fishing or Chad Miller Fishing? Let me get that right. It's Chad Miller Fly Fishing. Okay, Chad Miller Fly Fishing on Instagram. Uh, he posts some just, oh man, there's just smallies for days on that channel. And the best way to get a hold of you, uh, your website is, remind everybody? SugarCreekAnglers.com. Okay. And they can book the trips there and come come fish with you and hang out, right? Yep, they can get a hold of me. If Instagram, that webpage, whatever, they can get me. Sounds good. And it, 
what a great day uh, it will be on the water. I'm, I think I'm going to put it on my to-do list. So maybe we get it's out there. another of a lot of trips. Especially Chad. when Joshua's I was got planned. But, but now I can see like where Hoosiers <laughs> was shot on, on like after we get off. That'd be pretty cool, man. That would be pretty yeah, cool. Absolutely. Well, Chad, Chad, thank you so much for your time tonight. And uh, we really appreciate you hanging out with us. And uh, everyone, thanks for checking out this episode. Until next time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dads on the Fly podcast. We hope this episode has inspired you as a parent or an angler. If you've enjoyed this episode, please check us out at dadsonthefly.com. There you can subscribe to our email list and find out all the things we got going on here at Dads on the Fly.